hassles me a little bit. I didn't, I'm thinking, is it done? Okay, making sure I got my Moses voice going on. Okay, uh, I want to welcome everybody out today. We are still in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 and 2 Corinthians for quite a while. Uh, we are in our Address the Mess series. Uh, I titled it that because uh, the Corinthian church was a mess. It's pretty, pretty much that simple. It was just a mess. Now, I'm going to try to give you a brief recap. I'm going to be real honest. I don't know that we'll get through this today. I'm going to do the best I can to get through to the end of verse 8. may happen. Probably not. But we'll give it a shot. So this might be a fairly quick, brief recap, if at all possible. So for the last few weeks, we've been discussing the biblical definition of love as the Apostle Paul described it. Uh, here's the verses we've been covering, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. Does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about weddings. You know, because, I mean, we often hear these verses and we just um, automatically just affiliate them with weddings. Uh, and so we kind of misunderstand their meaning because weddings were actually the farthest thing from Paul's mind when he wrote this. It really has absolutely nothing to do uh, with a wedding ceremony, Right? Paul's purpose for writing these verses uh, was to explain how a believer's love should act or affect their behavior. That was the whole purpose of it, especially in relation to the exercise of spiritual gifts uh, in a public worship setting. Now, in chapter 13, Paul describes uh, one gift that supersedes all the other gifts, and that is the gift of love. And, I mean, this, this is, everyone has that gift. This is not one of those gifts that people say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a jerk because I don't have the gift of love. That's not how that works. I mean, everybody has been given the gift of love, uh, anyone who's ever believed. Uh, just unfortunately, the, the Corinthians really struggled applying both their spiritual gifts accurately and they struggled with love. Now, in verses 1 through 8, Paul just brilliantly contrasts how believers' love should and should not act. Uh, now, the love that Paul describes in these verses is the Greek word agape. And agape is sacrificial and unconditional love. Okay, and agape love describes the kind of love that God is, that God shows, and that God gives. That, that's agape love. And it's agape love that's present in the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and enables us or empowers us to be able to love God and love others. Now, when Paul described how love behaves, he began with the positive attributes of love. Did you ever take any management training? You ever notice how they say, well, start off with something positive before you go to something negative? You know what I mean? So it's like waiting for that foot to drop when they call you in the office kind of the same thing here. He started with the positive attributes of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. So he begins with this love is patient, love is kind. Now, like I said, this is a brief recap, so I'm going to quickly go through this, but love is patient means that love delays the natural reaction to anger and frustration. It delays it. It resists it. Uh, love is kind means that love acts with mercy and benevolence. Uh, then we get into last week, and last week Paul starts discussing uh, the negative aspect of the absence of love. And he begins with love does not brag and is not arrogant. Now, arrogance and boasting are simply two different reactions to the presence of pride in our lives. Okay? Arrogance is internal uh, and boasting is external and they're both just reactions to pride that exists in our life. Now, next he said that love does not act unbecomingly and does not seek its own. Does not act unbecomingly and does not seek uh, its own. And this means that love doesn't act in a way that dishonors God and it isn't self-serving. That's basically what that means. Instead, it glorifies God and it selflessly serves God. Okay, everybody with me? Am I going too quick on this recap? Okay, that, that gives me no hope, but we'll just keep moving. All right, 
Uh, there we go. Thank you. There's some encouragement. Okay, then finally, uh, we looked at love is not provoked, is not taken into account a wrong suffered. Okay, now uh, this means that love doesn't easily get drawn into anger and, and confrontation and contention. Uh, and because of that, love doesn't hold grudges. Instead, love offers forgiveness. Today, now, today Paul's going to continue discussing the negative aspects of the absence of love. The difference is if we have time and we make it to the end, he'll finish it with positive again. It's kind of a positive-negative sandwich. Positive in the middle's negative, okay? That's where we're hopefully we get to the bottom bun on this sandwich. Okay, that's as fast as I can catch up. So let's jump into this week. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Now, I inserted the word love there, but love does not rejoice in what? In unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. There we go. Now, the word rejoice is from the Greek word hyro, and it means uh, to be glad or to find joy in. That's what it means, to be glad or to find joy in. Now, unrighteousness is from the Greek word adikia, and it means unjust or inequitable. Okay, so what he's trying to say here is believers should not rejoice or find joy in injustice. They shouldn't find joy in prejudice. They shouldn't find joy in any kind of sinful behavior that dishonors God. We shouldn't find joy in that. And it's sad how believers get their joy polluted the farther away from God they get. And by polluted, I mean they find joy in things that oppose God's word and God's will. Okay, and that starts happening as you start drifting away from God. How many people ever heard the old saying, if you lay with dogs, you get up with fleas? How many people ever heard that? Strange as it may sound, that saying just means that the people you hang out with, you can pick up their habits. You can pick up their behaviors if you hang out with them, so be cautious who you hang around. So that's kind of what Paul's trying to project here. Because notice... The wording, he says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. So he makes a contrast here, right? In verse 6, he was pointing out that unrighteousness and truth are two polar opposites. They, they can't exist together. Anything that opposes God is unrighteous, and it's based on a deception. It's based on a deception, okay? Because it deceives people into believing that they can actually find real lasting joy apart from from God's direction and apart from God's will, and that's just not true. Believers cannot find joy apart from God's will. See, unrighteousness is not from God, so you're not going to find joy with God in unrighteousness. It's not going to happen. Because unrighteousness comes from the world. That's its author. That's its origin, its source. It comes from the world, and the world opposes God. Right? But I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, and I probably shouldn't be straying too much, but I'm going to. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but we live in an era, it used to be in the 50s and 60s, I wasn't alive back then, you have to talk to Dave Perkins, but in the 50s and 60s back then, I mean, there was a pretty biblical standard of morality. It still existed, you know what I mean? And people all kind of shared a general sense of morality and right and wrong. Uh, that's not the case anymore. The world is really contentious toward God. It really is. And does anybody here get mad watching TV because all the shots they take at God and Christianity? Anybody else get mad about that? And I don't know why I keep watching it, but it's like I want to see how bad it's going to get. You know what I mean? It's like, why do we look at the Kleenex after we blow our nose? Kind of the same thing. Why do you keep watching? Why do you keep watching when you know good and well it's not going to make you happy, right? But, <laughs> which is a very strange illustration. I'm going to lay it out there. But you're never going to find joy in unrighteousness because the world opposes God. And the origin of truth the origin of unrighteousness is the world in this world system, and I'll explain that in a minute. 
But the origin of truth is God. And everything he does to portray that truth is based on his omniscience or his all-knowing, uh, his state of being all-knowing, his omniscience. Meaning God plans uh, for us a life and gives us directions, right, that are based on timeless knowledge. Timeless knowledge. And that's what God has and only God has. By timeless, I mean God sees everything in one snapshot. See, we should never trust our own decisions. We can only see the now. And have you ever noticed that what we think is coming in the future usually is greatly skewed by what we want to come in the future or what we don't want to come in the future? But see, God sees time in one snapshot. He sees past, present, and future immediately. They all exist at once to him. He sees everything, everything, right? And so when God makes a plan, he sees the roadblocks and he makes contingency plans for those roadblocks. He deals with those roadblocks in the plans that he give us. When we follow his ways, he's figured in those potholes and how to get around them. Evidently, you're supposed to fix every pothole in the month of May in the state of Indiana on every road, but God finds ways to steer us around those because he knows they're coming and how his plans are based off his omniscience and knowing all things, right? Which is, you would think would make us want to listen to him. But see, the enemy knows how we are. We want to hear what we want to hear don't we? I mean, let's be honest. Have you ever talked to somebody and it's obvious they do not want the truth? They want you to agree with them? You ever had that session with someone? And I'm kind of blunt. I know that's shocking to you guys, but I'm kind of blunt. So when I counsel people, if I can tell that they don't want to hear the truth, I tell them, listen, I, I can't help you. You know, I don't know what you want me to say. Uh, what do you want me to tell you? You're wrong. Here's what God says. He's not going to change his mind. I'm not going to change my mind because I follow what he says so you need to go pay somebody 75 dollars an hour to tell you you lost a frog when you're little and you're sad that's what you need because you're not going to get it from me you know just saying i'm just going to tell you what the bible says it is what it is right so the enemy conveniently never mentions the consequences of your decision the enemy never mentions that to you when he's trying to persuade you to do things his way he never tells you the consequences the consequences of your actions and of your decisions you ever made a decision and later you're thinking, why didn't I think this would happen? This is stupid. You ever do that? It's funny, if you're young and old people tell you, trust me, that's a bad idea, you might want to listen to them because they didn't learn that from a book. They learned that from stepping in it. That's how they, that's how they learned that, right? So, the, I mean, the enemy just doesn't mention how things are going to turn out because he wants us seeking that instant gratification. He pushes us to seek instant gratification and he wants us to ignore the ramifications yeah 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 stuff might happen if you make that decision but think how awesome it's going to be right now you know that's how he influences us to make decisions so basically paul was saying love knows how to discern is basically what he's saying love knows how to discern what is true and what is not true meaning those who love like god who are trying to love the way god is teaching them to love should be able to judge between the truth and a lie this is something we should be able to do if we're trying to follow God's love. The discernment is defined as the ability to judge well or make good decisions. <laughs> There's so much I could say about that. I'll never forget I got called into the school one time uh, with someone here in the church asking me to go with them, and they were discussing the use of computers and tablets and stuff in school and whether they were used appropriately or inappropriately. And uh, I'm sitting at the table thinking, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And when this is over, I will walk out and go get a Big Mac or something, you know. And I couldn't stay quiet. 
it was my intention. It really was my intention. But the lady said, well, you know, I personally think that 95% of our students are going to make good decisions with their computer devices. <laughs> and I couldn't keep quiet. I should have, you know, because it just it didn't lead anywhere good, you know. And I looked at her and I said, I don't believe that. She said, why is that, Pastor Mosley, with that voice like I was going to get called to the office? And I said, I pastor a church, and I don't think 50% of the people of the church make good decisions, me included. Matter of fact, I don't know that 1% of this world makes good decisions all the time. And you're telling me that 14-year-old hormone-driven kids are going to make good decisions? Really? That's, that's where you're going to land on that one, huh? Discernment means the ability to judge well or make good decisions, and... Uh, love gives us discernment and people say how does it give us discernment because love encourages believers to listen to and trust and apply God's word to their lives that's what love that's what love encourages us to do and when we do that we're going to make better decisions because listen believers should love uh, should love and trust God enough to where when we see his commands uh, we actually listen we trust Him to give us good direction. That's what believers should be doing, right? We should trust God enough and love Him enough to say, what you say, I believe. Jesus kind of paraphrased that in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. He's saying, don't tell me that you love me. If you love me, listen to what I'm telling you and do it. That shows me that you trust me and that you love me. See, when believers drift away from God and get closer to the world, I don't know if you've noticed this, but things start changing in their life. The farther away from God we get, things start to change more and more in our lives. And we start finding that the joy, we start finding joy in things that the world embraces, that the world celebrates, that the world desires. We start trying to find our joy in those things, right? And when we do, we are rejoicing in unrighteousness. All right now, uh, there are several examples of what rejoicing and unrighteousness looks like and I literally had to try to trim this down and still I got probably too many but I'm going to give you some basic examples of what it means to uh, you know to rejoice in unrighteousness right when believers love to hear and share gossip they're rejoicing in unrighteousness because you are taking part in and enjoying maligning someone's life that is rejoicing or finding joy or being glad in unrighteousness and the same is true when believers reject God's authority or reject His word or reject His direction. That is rejoicing in unrighteousness. We're saying, no, your way is wrong. I like this. That's what it says when you reject that, right? So desiring the distractions that the world offers us is rejoicing in unrighteousness in a nutshell. Like getting distracted by politics. Has anyone in here ever been distracted by politics? Okay, thank you for the three of you that admitted it. I don't know what you guys think, but the last few elections have been a little contentious. You know what I mean? And politics has gotten ridiculous. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Okay, here's some political genius from your pastor. I don't think any of them really care about you. I'm just being honest. Label yourself donkey or elephant, but know this, it's Jesus who loves you. Okay? So I'm not going to fight with you about Democrat or Republican. Because people always ask me, which one are you? I'm like, Christian. They're like, that's not an option. I'm like, should be. Because that's, that's what I am. I mean, we get distracted by politics. Or there's this great desire in the times we live in to be seen or viewed as politically correct. 
We want the world to embrace us as being savvy and politically correct. And that's just not what believers should be seeking. There's no joy in that. And when believers start going down that road, you'll find yourself compromising to gain that admiration from the world. You'll find big compromises. I've seen believers get so sidetracked by politics and trying to be politically correct that they abandon fundamental biblical and moral concepts that have been, you know, we've known have been in the Bible for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it, that is rejoicing in unrighteousness. Here's some other ones. Being distracted by the pursuit of profit and, and, and the pursuit of possessions. Things like that is rejoicing in unrighteousness. If that's where you're trying to find your joy, that's rejoicing in unrighteousness because that shouldn't be your only drive. I've seen a lot of people put money in possessions above worship. And they work 18-hour days. Now, hey, I'm all about working, especially in the climate we live in. We need a little more of it. But there's a time when you're going overboard. I've seen people work so hard to build a future that they skip the present. And they don't know their children. They don't get to know their spouses. They avoid, they don't go to church like they should. They don't worship and read like they should. But they go, yeah, but I'm working 16 hours to make a better life. Yeah, but that's, you're gambling on the one thing you have no control over long you live you're gambling on that you might be building a trust fund for your wife's next puppy just saying biff the massage therapist might really like all your hard work he might dig that you know what i'm saying but i've seen people literally trade their life in for the desires of this world and trying to store up the desires of this world right and then later in life when they get serious about god they're like why don't my kids want to go to church because you didn't you made it sound like it was an option. You made it sound like it was something you did when you had nothing better to do. It was a pursuit that you would go after when you pursued all the other things that matter. Now you wonder why they don't want to go. Well, you were their mentor. Think of, you know, that's, that's a whole other message. Don't get me started on that. But that would be, you know, getting more excited about stuff like that would be, you know, rejoicing in unrighteousness. Getting more excited about entertainment, media, and sports. Getting more excited about that than knowing God is rejoicing in unrighteousness as well. And it cracks me up when people say to me, Pastor, I just can't, I can't remember scripture. How many people have ever heard somebody tell you, I just can't remember scripture? Raise your hand. Okay, that's a real popular one. Why don't you read? I can't remember it anyway. I go, oh. But then they can give you the TMZ view of their favorite celebrity's life of every day of the week, what's been going on. They've been following them on social media. They know when they eat, what they eat, because people have to photograph what you eat before, you know, you eat it, because, I mean, that's how it rolls, Right? They know what they eat. They know how many times they've been divorced. They know who they're dating, what their love interests are. They know all those things by heart, but they can't remember scripture. How about sports? I'm going to bust myself out here. Okay, sports. I do love sports. But I've had people tell me that love sports. I just can't, I can't remember scripture. But they can recite from memory their favorite athlete and their favorite team's stats and records from the last 20 years. Off the top of their head. Oh, no, that didn't happen. He threw for 3,900 yards that year. And you don't know where John talks about the love of god you know it's just uh, sometimes i think we get so sucked into those things we don't even realize that we're rejoicing in unrighteousness the list goes on and on i think you guys get my drift but so again finding joy in anything that opposes god is rejoicing in unrighteousness it's very important okay and all the distractions that the world offers they're all a part of a system that opposes god this world system okay the world system is god's enemy Okay, just so you know that, because it's under the control and the influence of the enemy, the devil. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Who are perishing. In whose case the God, notice this, now this is a small g. 
Okay, in whose case, the God of this present age. Okay? Is that up there? I don't think that's up there, is it? 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, it says, uh, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, verse 4, in whose case the God, small g, the small g here, so it's not talking about the God, it's talking about a God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here it's saying that the enemy is the God of this world. Okay? Now look at this, John 12, 31. It says, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world, look at that. Now judgment upon this world, now what? The ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, we know the ruler of this world being cast out can't be God. No one cast God out. That's the enemy. Okay? This is his sphere of influence. The temporary. This is where he can influence everything, right here. This is where he can influence every, uh, everything. Now James said... James is really direct. James reminds me of Peter. I love reading his stuff. I love it. Because, you know, he's the guy that will tell you. All right? James said, by befriending the world system, you just make yourself an enemy of God. Look at this, James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, notice this, makes himself an enemy of God. God isn't calling you an enemy. You are taking sides with his enemy. That's what it's saying. People say, read this and they say, see, God can make you his enemy. That isn't God that made you an enemy. You made yourself an enemy because you're siding with the ones who crucified us. And the world won't accept us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world won't accept us, won't embrace us until we are willing to rejoice in unrighteousness, the same unrighteousness that the God of this present age is pushing in the world system that we live in. You understand what I'm saying? Notice, if, listen, if you do things their way, they will accept you. But if you try to live righteously in a world that, that promotes unrighteousness, you are on the list. Trust me. And they're going to try to take you down. That's just the way it is. Okay? Now, for time's sake, I will keep moving. We are never going to miss. Anyway, love rejoices with the truth. All right? I love this one. This is where we start moving in. Love rejoices with the truth. This means love listens to the instruction that comes from God's word and rejoices in those truths. It rejoices because you know there's no hidden agenda. When you read the scripture, there's no hidden agenda, right? Religion is something that we've created. Denomination is something that we've created. God didn't have anything to do with that. I am not a fan of denomination. It's just another way to find uh, a separation between you and other believers. That's all it is. I don't like it at all, Okay. And I don't like religion because religion is what crucified Jesus. I'm not a fan of either of those things, right? But, you know, love listens to instruction and says, this is the word of God. It's not trying to make me a better Baptist or Pentecostal or Catholic or Lutheran or Mennonite or whatever. It's trying to draw me closer to my creator. There's no hidden agenda. That's why he rejoices in the truth, right? Uh, love says, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And I will surrender all that I am to you. When you're in love with someone, you marry them because you say, I'm surrendering my life to be with you. I want the two of us to have one life. Kind of similar. You're saying, God, I'm wrong. You're right, and I'm going to surrender myself to you. We should rejoice in the truth because the truth acts like a flashlight in darkness. And this world is dark. I mean, the truth illuminates where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. In Psalm 119, I love how the psalmist writes this. 
He says, your word is a what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp and a light. The idea is flashlight, stationary light. Okay? One, you flip the light on, it tells you where you are in the room. One is a light you take with you that points out where you've been going. You can turn around and it'll illuminate what's been behind you. God's word is both. It tells you what's behind you, what's in front of you, where you are. It illuminates what's going on around you. It illuminates truth. Have you ever been struggling with something? I hope I'm not the only one this has happened to. Have you ever been struggling with something and you open up the Bible and the first thing you start reading is about that? Anybody ever had that happen? And you're like, people are like, wow, that, I'm so lucky. <laughs> it's almost like there's an omniscient God that maybe you needed to read that today. You know what I mean? It's funny though, you love it when it tells you something you're dying to know. You hate it when it tells you you're wrong. You ever do that? You get mad at somebody and you are taking into account a wrong suffer, right? And you're like, I'm going to hold a grudge against them. I'm sick of them. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me, you know? And then you open up the Bible and the first thing you read is forgive or you will not be forgiven. You're going, whoop, wrong chapter. You know what I mean? And you start changing it. That's how the word works. It illuminates truth to you. Every time, every time I want to be mad at somebody, I open the Bible and I'm like, let me think of a book that won't tell me to be nice to this person. Maybe I'll look, you know, maybe I'll look back in Leviticus. You know? <laughs> then there's a law telling you to love your neighbor. So, I mean, I'm like, you, you always open it up. But that's what the, the Word of God does. It, it illuminates, right? It rejoices in the truth because the truth is honest and tells you where you're going and how to succeed in that direction, right? And the world hates it. They hate it when you rejoice in the truth rather than rejoice in their unrighteousness. And as soon as they see that you are convinced of God's truth and that you're not going to buy into all their distractions and all their deceptions, then they start persecuting you. And now we have cancel culture. Now they try to cancel you, right? Now they attack whatever you believe. They figure if they can just, you know, talk a lot and a lot negative about you that no one will give you any credit. They forget that the one we're talking about created all things, so they're not going to shut it down. But that's what happens. Now, I'm going to push this. Here we go. Okay. Now we're going to move on to where God starts, the other side of the sandwich starts to come in. Okay? And this next section just kind of reveals just how amazing God's love can be. And it made me think of a story I want to share with you. I was in Walmart one time uh, waiting for a prescription, which can be an epic venture. And I was waiting on a prescription to pick it up. And I, I think they make you wait a long time hoping you'll buy a bunch of stuff you don't need. Anybody ever done that? You go in to get allergy medicine and you leave with a foot washer or something, you know? I think that's why it takes so long. But I was in Walmart one day and just waiting until I could pick up my prescription and I heard what sounded like, you know, a young couple giggling and, and you know, behind me and stuff. And, and I noticed that, you know, they were laughing and giggling like a couple of flirting teenagers. And I just passively glanced at the guy. I didn't see the lady yet. And, and he was a very elderly man, very old man. He was like Kevin Bates. And, and I noticed that, that he was giggling and, 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 the, and his wife who was in the other row was giggling and it was like they were flirting with each other. It was, it was really neat. And I remember thinking how wonderful it was that someone that age was still so in love. When I finally got the opportunity, I couldn't wait to, to actually see them because they were just so joyous hearing these two giggle and go on and they're, you know, 80s or late 70s, early 80s. And they're just, they're just giggling and, and, and I turned around when I got the opportunity and it was a very, very old couple and the man's wife was in a wheelchair. And uh, I'm going to try to get through this without bawling, some sort of wuss. But um, she was in a wheelchair. 
and evidently she was the victim uh, of a stroke or something. It just brought me to tears seeing this because, I mean, just so happy, smiling in her limited motion. I mean, you could tell that she had been affected by something like a stroke. She couldn't move very much, and, and it broke my heart. But the husband didn't see her like I did. He didn't see her the way most people probably walked by and said, oh, you know, poor thing, looks like she's had a stroke. They look with pity on her. He, di he didn't see her like that. He didn't look on her with pity. He didn't look like she was a burden to him. He looked at her with eyes of a young teenage boy trying to impress a girl. That's what it looked like to me. And it literally moved my heart. And he just, the love in his eyes was amazing. He looked at her uh, with just these big loving eyes and the smiles on their faces, I mean, made you think they didn't have a care in the world. I mean, it just looked like they didn't have a care in the world. And when I saw his eyes, I didn't see a man who was burdened and ready to give up. I didn't see that in him. I, I couldn't see it in him at all. It, it looked like the way I looked at my wife when I first saw her in high school. Do you guys remember when you first saw the one? It was usually probably like number 136, but this is the one. You know, when you really see the one. I, I remember I looked and I thought, that's how I looked at my wife when I first saw her in high school. And I, I was, I'm surprised I didn't walk into a wall when I first saw her. You ever just, like, a, that's really creepy. But I was looking at her a long time, you know. And I, I about walked into a wall, and uh, she was so beautiful to me. And I thought to myself, oh, man, she hadn't seen me staring. But if she did, she didn't act like she did, so she had mercy on me if she didn't. But, you know, it made me think of that. And, you know, I still see her like I saw her then. That's never changed. I still see my wife the same way I saw her then. And I was thinking to myself as I saw that couple, if God allows us to live into our 70s and 80s, I know that I'm going to look at her that way then too. I know I am because that's how love acts. That's how love acts. I honestly don't believe a wheelchair or a stroke will change my perception of the beauty of the one that I chose to spend the rest of my life with. That's how love acts. And that kind of love is truly amazing and it's it's true love. It's just unconditional. It's like God's love. Look, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Unconditional love is the topic in view as we go into these last few verses. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 6-8. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, the Greek word for bears is stego, and it means to put up with. And my wife has put up with me a long time. 31 years, the 23rd of this month. Long time. But love is not quick to run when times get hard. Love is not quick to run when, time is ch when times are challenging. Love is also willing to put up with the shortcomings and mistakes of others. That's what love is. And that's exactly how Jesus loved us. Because despite our sinfulness and despite our, imper our imperfections, He still offered eternal life. Look at this, 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, praise God, but according to... To his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, if believers are going to be successful, we have to be able to bear each other's burdens. 
We have to have that kind of a relationship. Because there are times that we all fall short of our potential. There's definitely times that we all fall short of righteousness. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. If you're self-righteous, you're a fool. Because you have no righteousness apart from Christ. Okay? And since we all sin, and since we all make mistakes, we need to be able to bear those mistakes in each other if we're going to succeed. Because there's never going to be a time when a friendship is perfect. When a relationship is perfect. I mean, other than, you know, mine and my wife. But everyone else in the world. You know what? But when those times come that we need each other, it's the responsibility of the body of Christ when one of us is struggling to love them enough to not talk about them, not judge them, not ridicule them, not gossip about them, but actually bear them up and bear their burdens and show them love. People are always trying to get me to get on the bandwagon with judging and hating other people. And here's the way I see it. I have no right to judge anyone else or to hate anyone else until I get my life clear of sin, and I don't see that ever happening. That's why Jesus had to come and die for me. You know what I mean? So, I just don't see that. We need to bear each other's burdens. It says, love believes all things. This literally means to trust in. It's kind of the same word as believing in Christ. It means to be convinced of, to, to trust in, or to have faith in someone. Once again, I mean, in any relationship, in any workplace, in any company, or on any team, people need to support each other. I mean, support from people who are able to believe in themselves and believe in you is imperative. And the, the, this only comes when you are genuinely bought in to the people you're serving with. When you really love them enough to encourage them and walk by their side through good and bad. That's what he was trying to get to happen in this Corinthian church. But they were like individuals existing on the same plane. They weren't working together. If you want others to believe and to trust in you, then be believable and be trustworthy. Don't, you know, do you give up when you feel like it's not benefiting you anymore? Well, then don't expect people to stay with you when you're struggling because you may not be benefiting them anymore. Love looks beyond those things and stays the course. It's just the way it is. Now, the Greek word for hope believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Greek word for hope is not like the English word. Uh, the Greek word for hope is the word elpizo. And it means confident, to confidently expect. It's a confident expectation is what it means. Okay? Now, when we see the, the word hope, we misunderstand because we put it in the context of the English terms. In the English, hope means positive yet uncertain. There's a good chance. I hope so. You know what I mean? That's how we see it. Scripturally, when you say, I have the hope of heaven in the Bible, in the Greek it means, I am confident I'm going to heaven. That's what the word elpizo means in the Greek. See, true love understands what someone is capable of, and it fully believes and expects them to achieve it, and is willing to do anything to help them achieve that. And how can someone expect someone else to achieve something? First of all, you've got to realize that they're as much God's child as you are, and if God's going to help you succeed, He's going to help them succeed because you guys are after the same thing. I mean, that's really, really important. And second, because you should love each other enough to be willing to help each other succeed. That's just the way it should be. Look at Romans 15, 1 through 6. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses, uh, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and just not please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of, the, of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through our perseverance 
and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, confidence. Okay? Verse 5. Now may the, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, am I going to get through this? We're going to try one more section, all right? You with me? Okay, one more section. Let's go. All right. Giddy up. Here we go. Believes all things, endures all things. The, words in, the word endure in the Greek is hupomenum in the Greek, and it means to hold out. It means to hold out. True love holds out for or sticks with or never gives up on someone no matter what. That's what true love does. We see this displayed in the love of Christ. You know what I mean? Now, now too often Christian people fail to display an enduring love. It's a, it's a selfish love. As long as I'm receiving something, I'll give love. That's not the way God loves. Because as soon as someone you know, frustrates us or tests our patience, we move on and we forget about it. Can you imagine if God did that with us? You know, before I give up on somebody, I think, man... What if God did this to me? What if, when I made mistakes, which is rare, no, it happens all the time, trust me. And my wife's back there going, liar. But think about it. If every time you made a mistake, every time you screwed up, God goes, I'm done, Chris, you're an idiot. You know? Imagine if he did that. So if God wouldn't do that, why should we do that? If God gave up on us every time he made a mistake, every one of us would split hell wide open. Just saying. Now, praise God that God's love isn't like that. It's enduring, and, it, and it's gracious, and it's long-suffering, and I really shouldn't read this, but I'm going to Romans 8, 35-39. says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Before I finish, just remember, Paul's wordy. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, <laughs> he's wordy, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paraphrase, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. I mean, Paul was more eloquent. You know, you wouldn't believe how many times your patient endurance with someone will both strengthen them and draw you closer to God at the same time. It's amazing how much it can do that. In Ephesians 4, it says, Therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Listen, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing what? Tolerance for each other in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. So the result is enduring love, of enduring love is just strong relationships with each other and with God. That's, that's what enduring love brings you. And that makes me think of that elderly couple. That makes me think of that. Because that man was not willing to give up on that woman at any point. You know, he could have said, I don't want to wheel you around. I don't want to have to take care of you and wipe your mouth the rest of your life. That's not what I signed up for. No, he didn't put her in a nursing home, and I know there's times that has to happen. But you could tell that this man was going to hold on to the last thread to make sure that he got to spend that time with the love of his life. And even though she was in a wheelchair, she was still the love of his life. He didn't see a burden. He saw a gift from God. And he was enjoying every second of that gift. And that leads us to the rest of these verses, but I'm going to have to pick that up next week because I am shooting over the topic. So I'm going to go ahead and close. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads.
this is your first time, you always give a brief invitation. I always ask why every head is about, you know, it's between you and God. I don't need to know. I just need to know if you'd like prayer. I don't ask people to come down front. I don't do that. But I do want to pray for you. So if you just make eye contact and put your head right back down, bless those people. I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. And I don't just say that. I actually do. Bless those people. Because I believe God knows what's going on in your heart. And he wants to clear that up. And I'm going to pray that you are open to hear it. Because he will give you direction. Bless those people. If you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. Believers, if there's one thing that the church has a deficit in, it's the love we have for each other. We have real issues here. Real issues here. Because we have become more combative and more exclusive and more separative than we ever have in the history of this church, I believe. I just really wish we could stop and take a look at what matters and be a little more patient and compassionate and realize we're all on the same team and love that team like your family because you're going to spend the rest of eternity with them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do, for all your love and all your mercy and all your grace. We just thank you that you loved us despite us because we have nothing to offer. We can't be good enough. We can't be righteous. We always make mistakes. We let you down. We doubt. We have fears. But your love is so powerful that you look past all those things and sent your son to die on a cross so that anyone who could believe, no matter what they were or what they'd done, what people thought of them, if they would believe that what Jesus did was enough, to guarantee their eternal life, you promise to give it to them as a gift. So whatever's holding people back, just remove it, because there is nothing they can do or be that can take them out of the sphere of your great love that's interesting. If they make that decision, I just pray they contact us. We want to walk them in that journey. But for those of us who are believers, God, we are really hurting in this area. While the world falls apart around us, we retreat to our homes, and become so selfish and self-centered. Give us a passion to love each other the way you love us. To be willing to stand in the gap for each other. To be willing to encourage each other. Support each other. Because only through the most powerful love, the greatest gift ever given, can we turn things around. Give us a passion to embrace that. And we just pray as we leave here, you keep us safe and let us live with the And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. So we're here. Thank you, Jesus.